Hey guys, and welcome to Hunting Land, presented by Great Days Outdoors Magazine. If you'd like to stay up to date on hunting tactics, land management, land values, and land market dynamics, this is the podcast for you. This week's show is brought to you by Pyramid Air. At Pyramid Air, they believe air guns are for everyone. From big game hunting, to fun trigger time, to firearm training. Big selection, fast shipping, the air gun experts. Find out more at PyramidAir.com. And also brought to you by Photonis Defense is proud to offer the PD Pro line of night vision systems. These ultralight, ultra compact night vision systems deliver the cleanest image, best resolution, smallest, most transparent halo, and best overall performance and function of any night vision system available. Check them out. Photonis Defense, Masters of Darkness. And also Alabama Farmers Co-op. From backyard gardening to large-scale farming and everything in between, your local co-op has what you need to be successful. Since 1936, Alabama Farmers Cooperative has provided high-quality products and friendly service to community members and local farmers. With over 60 locations to serve you and 85 years' experience, you can count on the co-op. For more information and to find a location near you, visit www.alafarm.com. And also, Sun South. Everyone loves the great outdoors, but let's face it, the heat can be brutal for those never-ending summer projects. At Sun South, they get it. With fast and efficient John Deere equipment from Sun South, you'll spend less time sweating and more time doing. And with 0% financing up to 72 months on select equipment, you'll not only save time, you'll save money. And that's pretty cool. Do more and save more with John Deere from SunSouth. Equipment for those that do. Some restrictions apply. See dealer for details. Expires July 31st, 2021. So Clint, you know, we've we've talked about no-till on here before, but have you been able to do it at all on your property? No, not yet. I'm hoping this year is going to be the year, much as I've learned about this from, from Grant and others that we've talked through in the past year or two. I'm committed to try it, especially on some of the sandier ground that we've got. So it's just about trying to line up the logistics of equipment first and foremost and then and I'm ready to get after it but man this the muscle memory is there for for all these conventional methods yeah not only do you have to convince yourself you got to convince the people that help you to get involved with it and and be a believer and in addition to that man it just seems like every year I've got so many things I want to do but it it always seems like all right just got to get it in the ground you know it's like you just always seem to run out of time but I'm like you I mean I've I've seen what our guest today has done uh, with no-till. I'm a believer and I can't wait to really not only get it started, but also see the downrange benefits of these practices on my place. So joining us again today, we've got Dr. Grant Woods uh, with Growing Deer TV. Uh, I would say the foremost authority on no-till food plots out there. So Grant, welcome back to the show. Tell us a little bit about uh, what you've been doing on the Proving Grounds lately. We've been no-tilling for 20 years. I sold my little chisel plow I had, a little bitty cheapy thing I got some farm store, and I've not touched a disc or anything to disturb the soil in, in 20 years, literally. So where did you come across this first, Grant? I mean, what got you interested in this? What made you make that leap? Yeah, you know, I think like everyone, even back in the day, I'd heard a little bit about no-till and fewer passes across the field, getting stuff done a little quicker. I was not thinking soil health at the time. I was just thinking, man, that's cool. And that'd save you some time, more time to go hang stands or do whatever. And my wife, Trace, and I purchased some some land in Missouri. And it's, it's really rocky here. We're right next to Branson. For those folks that may have been to Branson, Missouri, we're just 10 minutes outside of Branson. It's very rocky. And the local uh, county soil office, you know, it's kind of where I would drive and they had a couple of no-tills out in the parking lot and I inquired and they would rent them really inexpensively, which is still a practice around America. It's a great deal. So I said, well, heck, I'm going to try this. So I, you know, rocked a bat. I, it was really a weedy burnout cattle ranch and I sprayed a, an opening area with some glyphosate to terminate what was there and just drilled into it. That was the only prep I did. Just, you know, kind of last minute, well, we get this try, see what happens. And was shocked at how, A, how easy it was, and B, of course, the food plot grew well and saw a lot of deer and whatnot. And so just never wanted to invest in a disc. I thought, you know, I could rent the county's drill. I think it was like $7 an acre time or something really cheap. And then once I started doing that, I said, well, gosh, there's there's more advantages and just kept learning until, you know, now 20 years later, it's really kind of 
is a big part of what I do in trying to help other people because, you know, the deer we produce and it's way less expensive and all the reasons I like it. Grant, I love marketing. I really do. I think it's a great way to help people find what they need when they need it. But that being said, anytime something becomes trendy, marketers latch on to certain words and use them to attract the kind of people they're looking for, but it's not always accurate. So, I mean, as an example, you're saying you haven't tilled the soil really in any way. Is that what's required for something to truly be no-till? Or can you just no-till, say, your fall food plots and then till in the spring? You know, I mean, one of the things that comes to my mind is making soil amendments. I'm, I'm in a situation where I need to apply lime to some of my food plots. And just about anywhere you go, they tell you, apply your lime, work it into the soil. What do you think about that? By definition, what really is no-till? Yeah, well, no-till is really no-till. If you till the soil, you're doing a couple of things. I don't think most of us really think about, and this is scientists, you know, in a different field than me that have taught me this, but of course you expose the soil to a whole lot more air, oxygen air, than what it would be if it wasn't tilled. And I always go back to, we used to call it the buffalo system. As we've learned more, we change that to the release process. But, you know, when the buffalo were roaming, even in South Carolina, Alabama, and certainly on the Great Plains, there was no tillage. Uh, they would just trample down the existing vegetation and urinate, defecate on it, eat some, and, and move on. Uh, fire, lack of vegetation, predators kept them moving. So there was no real tillage, and that created the, the richest soil ever known on the planet, period. And so when you till, there's this inordinate amount of air, oxygen, that gets next to the soil particles, and that causes an oxidation process. It damages the soil literally. And even more importantly, and I think this is tough for guys like me to understand, because I, I got to tell you, when I left college, I never want to see another microscope again, man. I want to be handling deer or something I get my fingers on. So but the microbes, which is a fancy word for bacteria, the really beneficial microbes in the soil that make this all work, they're killed by this excess amount of oxygen. And that excess amount of oxygen causes bad microbes to populate or, or gain the balance there. So when you till, this big influx of oxygen hurts the process of what soil can do for itself naturally. And that's one of the biggest reasons. And then, a, you know, a side reason, earthworms are really God's soil builders. They, you know, as they're going forward, stuff's coming out the rear end of them, and that's the world's best fertilizer. And they're making the right amount of tillage. They're loosening the soil. They're, they're allowing oxygen and water to infiltrate the right amount, not an excess, but the right amount. So, and you may have seen the, an episode we just released uh, last week. We were out working with a landowner in in Kansas, Western Kansas, where the average topsoil is seven feet deep. I mean, it's just the opposite of where I am. And you're thinking, man, that's going to grow some deer and some crops. And it certainly used to, but it was just cool. He had a little food plot. We'd help him lay out this spring. And, you know, early, I guess is like February for planting time. And, and we go back out there and he was so proud. And it was a decent crop, but it was just full of weed, just full of pig weed. And he was talking to us, just happened to have the camera running, just you can, if you watch it, your tell it was not staged at all. No chance. And he said, well, I double disc this field. I disc it twice. Well, I mean, I just, I just wore this dirt. I mean, the man I disc it, it was like powders, like a garden. Well, that's what caused all the weeds, but because that allowed the weed seeds to get to the surface and germinate. But more importantly, he had double disc this. See, everyone thinks, well, I'm preparing a great seed bed, but it's just the opposite. And it's hard to understand, but it's just the opposite. And I pulled up a sunflower and some other plants he had, you know, growing in this food plot and all of them went down about two inches and then the root went, you know, sideways, perfectly sideways, just like it hit a rock. But there are no rocks. This was a creek bottom field where the average soil depth is seven feet. And that's called a hard pan. And so when you disc, you're fluffing up that top a little bit, but right below that, as that tractor's going forward, it's actually pulling the disc down. That's the physics. When it's going forward and you have something heavy behind there, it's not floating. It's actually going down. And the tractor's transferring some of its weight to the disc. That's how it works because the disc just sitting there just sets on top of the ground. 
And all that weight's going down to those eighth-inch wide blades, and they're really compressing the soil, compacting the soil below where it's tilling it, and that's making a hard pan. So this gentleman, great older gentleman, was shocked when I started pulling up plants. He obviously hadn't pulled up. Most people don't walk around pulling up plants. And I started pulling up plants, and this J-rooting, this hitting the hard pan was 100% obvious. And I promise you, that gentleman will never disc again. Because when a plant J-roots, it can't get to all the nutrients and moisture that's below that level. And you're really limiting what your crop can do. So, Grant, I I mean, I think guys typically fall into two camps. Um, Some folks are interested in doing what's best for, for the habitat, for the wildlife. Some folks are interested in the most bang for their buck when it comes to any kind of land management, whether that's their timber, their food plots, you know, really anything. Some of us are, have both of those things in line. You talked a lot about the soil health, but what are some of those drawbacks to tillage that maybe kind of hit people in the pocketbook? Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, you, you can establish food plots with tillage. That's obvious. People still till and grow crops in the Midwest. So, I mean, that's a successful system, but it costs a lot more, right? You've got to add lime and fertilizer and some folks are even adding, you know, herbicide, pesticide, fungicide. And, and for me and, and other people, my friends, buddies, whatever, all throughout the White Tills range, I haven't added any lime or fertilizer in eight years, period. None. I'm, I'm growing really big deer for the Ozarks, really, really big deer for anywhere. So when you get the system kind of working and the soil working, again, like it did, you know, pre-European settlement here, to take care of it. Let's just go through a couple of examples of why we don't need to do those things. There's really easy ones. So above every acre on the planet, there's about 30 tons of nitrogen in the atmosphere, 30 tons. So if you've got a couple of good legumes in each rotation, maybe a summer food plot and then a fall food plot, you're pumping nitrogen out of the air into the soil. Nitrogen is really volatile. So if you disc it once, it's gone, but you can store it by those roots slowly decaying and whatnot. That's a huge advantage. And then something a little bit more newer research, that, that nitrogen stuff's been around a long time, but great researcher out of Nebraska actually found out, just start looking, all the soil tests we all do for our food plots, you may be using something, you may not even look or may not even be doing a soil test, but if you look, it's usually a Melic 3 or something like that, the type of test. I think Clemson uses the Melic 3 test. But anyway, that's based on acid. What amount of NP and K can this acid bring out of the soil? And this brilliant guy said, well, gosh, that's not really how it works. And, you know, out here in my food plot or in the ag field, it's rain. So he started using water soluble. And it turns out under about every acre, there's five to 10,000 pounds of phosphorus per acre. And once he started working on this, of course there is. I mean, phosphorus is a big part of most native rock. It's just an element in rock. And the weathering process of that will make that available. So, again, I haven't had to pay for any fertilizer in all these years. And I can put that money towards developing new food plots, whatever. And if you don't till the soil and you allow these beneficial micro populations to build up and the plant roots to do their magic, all that stuff's there. And, and of course, we know it is because... If we read Lewis and Clark or any of the early explorers, they talk about how productive all this land was before synthetic fertilizer was even known. That's all pretty cool science. But what makes me, what I've seen and experienced and makes me so happy is you can do that on an acre or two. You don't have to be, you know, a 5,000 acre farmer in Nebraska to pull this off. You just have to treat the dirt right. And it's amazing what will happen. The idea of not having to bring in the amendments is attractive to me from from a financial perspective, but you know you mentioned it earlier, also just from a time perspective for folks that are managing either large acreage close to home or or any size acreage that's a little bit further away. I mean, time's very limited. Timing is is also a tough thing too. What about moisture? I hear you talking about moisture a lot on uh, growing deer. You know your your YouTube channel, you know, and, and how much better no-till practices are for retaining moisture. Does it also give you some good flexibility in terms of timing when you're planting? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So, 
so I'm blessed. I, I live on this piece of land I primarily manage, but I work all over the Whitetails range. So timing's tough for me. And we talked just a little bit, but if you've got this thatch layer or mulch layer on, on top of your ground, because you've been no-tilling and you know, you're no-tilling, we call it planting green. We, we drag our no-till right through that standing crop. Let's just say like right now we're getting ready to plant our fall food plots or we will in about three weeks here in Missouri, if we get a little rain, we'll be planting about two to three weeks where I am. And I've got, you know, sunflowers and sun hemp and soybeans and milo. I, and I plant all these together, folks. I plant a blend. And I want to take just a, a small aside and say, you don't have to have five different seed boxes on your drill. Just mix it all up, put it in there. It's not going to separate out. That's an old, old myth. I, farmers plant cover crops, millions of acres every year, what's called, you know, multi-species cover crops in the same bucket on their no-till drill and no issue. You don't need to be separating all this seed out. And I will drill right through my standing crop and I'll knock some sunflowers down, some milo down. Hey man, that's almost like, don't tell me one, that's like hunting a baited field. I mean, you've got all this grain laying on the ground. It's perfectly legal because all you did was just drag a no-till through there. And no acorns are on the ground yet here, you know, in Missouri at the start of bow season in most places. So where do you think the deer are going to feed? It's just, this is wonderful from a hunting point of view. But so I never disturb the soil. I'm just going to drag my drill through there and plant the next crop. And so there'll still be some soybeans and some sunflowers. They got bent over, but they're still alive. They're doing good. So deer are eating. They never had to leave and go to my neighbors to feed. They're still eating, but there's enough sun getting to the soil for this new crop to germinate and, and you know, and the seedlings to photosynthesize and be viable. So, and then I've never bared the soil. So again, the heat is staying off the soil and I'm not losing moisture to evaporation. This is key. So key. I'm glad you brought up moisture is we can't control. Most food plotters aren't irrigating. It's an impossibility for most of us. We can't control how much moisture we get, but we can control how much we save or conserve. And again, if you have your soil covered with, you know, last year's cereal rye or whatever blends you had out there, that's really significantly reducing the amount of moisture loss to evaporation. And if you can save it and make it available for the next crop, you're fine that even in drought conditions, unless they're just really severe like organs it's seeing now, you'll be able to grow a crop when your buddies that's been disking, they're going, am I? My crop didn't even germinate or, you know, it got two inches tall and the deer wiped it out. Your plant's going to be able to grow much quicker, take more nutrients out of soil, and you've got all that money you would have spent on lime and fertilizer still in your pocketbook. That's almost enough for me in and of itself, just because, I mean, I can plan well in advance. Hey, we're going to go up this weekend and we're going to plant. The general advice is, you know, hey, wait on, wait on when that good rain's coming. Well, I mean, I don't know. I got two young kids, you know, other, <laughs> other, other things pulling at my time. Like a lot of times it's just not, we're going to plan on Labor Day or what, you know, whatever weekend you decide. And that's where a lot of guys fall, I feel like. And I mean, I, I know it's happened to me. I'm sure it's happened to Clint as well. I mean, we've had just failed food plots. We just had to replant. Yeah. That, that was us last year. Yeah. Yeah. It was. It was bad. By the time we got out there, you know, I just, I could tell by how much dust we were eating while we planted that I was, <laughs> felt like I was just disking my money into the ground. And the results showed that that's basically what happened. I might as well have driven down the highway and thrown it out the window. That's such a great point, Clint. When you're disking or doing anything and you see dust flying off the field, you need to realize that you're really helping your neighbor somewhere, or maybe someone or an after or something. Cause <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the finer the particle is usually the better quality soil or more nutritious. So when you see dust leaving, you're hurting your soil. And and then, you know, you get a, you know, you go, man, I'm going to plant it's supposed to rain. And it's sure enough, man, you time to ride and it does. It comes a two inch thunderstorm and falls all at once in the South, especially in that, you know, that Piedmont play belt, it's packing that soil so hard, those doggone seeds. You got to remember, they have to germinate and make a root and try to bust through that soil. It's what I call the onboard energy. Because until they photosynthesize, they get some leaves built, they, you know, and get some solar panels out there, they can't get any more energy. And so you got a little seed, let's just say, you know, a turnip, a clover, something like that. There's not much energy in there. And you've done this, the standard, and I've done this a bunch of acres. You know, well, I'm going to disc it up, I'm going to broadcast my seed, then I'm going to drag it. 
or I'm going to re-disc it. And you always say, I'm just going to disc it lightly. Well, what is lightly? Some of those seeds are getting two or three inches deep in the ground and, and they're dead. They don't have enough energy to get through that soil and, and make those solar panels to grow. So, you know, when you no-till, you're placing seed at a certain depth. And like my fall blend here, I'm going to plant about a half inch deep. It's got a bunch of small seeds, some strong annual clovers. I've got some crimson in there. And, you know, I've got the new balancia clover. It's, if you haven't tried it, guys, y'all try it. Man, that stuff is really, really, I mean, it's a producer. And, of course, I got some turnips and radishes and small grains in there, wheat, rye, oats. And, and if I get that stuff too deep, it's just not going to grow. And then for me, of course, I'm drilling right through a standing crop. So I'm putting mulch on top of those seeds. And even if I just barely get them on top of soil, they're covered with this mulch. They're not laying there in a baked out field with the sun just beating on them every day. And you have a lot higher germination rate that way. All this is great. I mean, implemented properly. There's, I guess, a learning curve into getting the equipment you need and learning when you need to be doing what. The equipment portion seems like a drawback to me because most guys, if they're planting food plots, they've got some way to break the soil up, some way to broadcast the seed and get the seed into the ground, some way to pack it down and and get good seed to soil contact. Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. you know, when I watch you guys and you're using no-till drills and and using crimpers and things like that, is that a real drawback to no-till? I mean, for somebody just getting started or or are there any other drawbacks to no-till that maybe I'm not thinking of? I think those can be drawbacks. Again, almost every county has in America has an NRCS office and and almost all those rent no-till drills. The drawback to that is, you know, man, when conditions are right, you want to plant and your buddy wants to plant and the neighbor across the county wants to plant. So sometimes getting a drill right, right when you want it is a hassle. You know what I'm seeing, which I think is so cool to me, and I'm not being political at all, but I think this is the heart of America. I'm seeing you know, two or three smaller landowners, they're tired of trying to rent the no-till drill when they want it or it's broken when they want it or whatever. And they're just going together and buying it as a little co-op. You know, I, boy, I can't really, my wife would kill me if I spent that much money on a no-till, but I can come up with a third one or, you know, whatever it is. And I, I don't need that piece of equipment sitting there all summer long just to plant my 15 acres, but the three of us together, well, we can justify that. So I'm seeing these little co-ops and and it's and at that point, to me, it's not about the drill or even the food plots. Now you got people talking and, you know, maybe one guy's a little different, man. I, I, I can't stand them doggone bow hunters. And the other guy's, well, man, uh, my neighbor over there, his doggone son-in-law shoots every deer at every walk. Now you got people cooperating together and, you know, and working towards a common goal. And I'm seeing so much good come out of that. But yeah, getting a crimp, crimpers aren't near as expensive as a no-till, but, and you can get away without a crimper, but a no-till, there's really no substitute for that. I hear guys say all the time, well, I'm just going to drop my disc about two inches. Well, if you're busting up soil and, you know, and killing weeds, you, you've killed a gazillion earthworms and microbes while you were doing it. It's just so much better than no-till. But yeah, and I also want to say this, I want to say it really clearly, you mean, if you've got a system that's working for you and you're happy with your food plots and the quality of deer and, you know, all those things, and you don't need to change. I'm not here to make anyone change. I just want to offer some solutions if you're having some issues, if you're fighting drought or every year you got to keep adding more and more fertilizer or your soil just, you know, it's a road and you see ditches, little ditchlets out there in your field, then, then there are better ways. But if you're happy, keep doing what you're doing. I don't know anybody that wouldn't want to save some time. I mean, I think that to me is just from a, just from a fundamental economical, however you want to look at it perspective, whether we're talking about the soil health or the health of the wildlife, whatever it may be. I mean, how many passes are you generally having to make is just putting the seed in the ground and then terminating the standing crop, right? Yeah, exactly. We're going to like this, this spring here in Missouri, we had a really cold, I mean, man, you know, we were getting snow at times we normally would be planting. It was just a late, cold, wet spring. And I'm thinking this is horrible for turkeys and horrible for food plots. And we had a great hatch because we just, I mean, I'll just say we worked to take out predators. My wife has a super king size raccoon and coyote blanket, literally Figured out that was too hot to sleep under, although it's beautiful. So I got her a possum blanket made. You're laughing, but 
we call possums, those are mountain minks because that skin is so soft, but it's cool enough you can stand to sleep under it without ever window open in your house. And on the food plot side, you know, we were just late and man, our, our fall crop, the crop we planted last fall, which it was over my, I'm six foot tall, is over my head. I'd walk out in there and the guy's, hey, I can't see you. I can't see you. And and we just drilled right through it. And I, I mean, to tell you the truth, I didn't know what was going to happen. We're like, I don't know. We may be doing this three times. I don't know. And it's awesome. If you're looking out the window right now, you'd be going, man, Grant, that is beautiful. And we just drilled through it and then we crimped. Period. Now, we had a couple of smaller fields where the deer had browsed everything really hard. And we used glyphosate to terminate that because they'd browsed it so hard, some some bad, nasty weeds were starting to grow in there. And I didn't want those things making seed. And I don't think you're going to go from whatever system you're using to a no-till and get out of using herbicide 100% first year. I don't see that happening very often. I do see you going from spraying twice a year, three times a year to once a year. That's very realistic. And herbicide rates, glyphosate, I don't know, used to be like $12 a gallon. Now it's like $25 or $30 a gallon. So saving, you know, that can be a big savings. And and I'm not anti-herbicide, but let's face it, who goes, man, I go to, I get to go get some glyphosate all over my hands today. I don't know anyone that says that. So the least amount of herbicide I can use, the more I like it. From an expense and time point of view and just a common sense point of view, why do I want to be putting extra synthetic chemicals on the soil if I don't have to? Yeah, I, I can't agree with that more. I mean, I'm not saying I don't use it. I was up a couple of weeks ago spraying some, but yeah, like you say, you're, you're kind of... <laughs> you you you're curious you know like hey what am i doing i hopefully i don't have to do this a lot um and and want to do it uh less and less if possible food Human air involved and all that kind of stuff and, and hopefully all those infomercials you see at night don't start weighing on you too well there's that and and i'm glad you brought up the human error too because i mean like i don't know we were spraying like you mentioned grant we were spraying into five and six foot vegetation with a utv sprayer you know i mean this isn't exact science like it would be in an agricultural field so then i'm going well am i getting enough per acre am i you're looking at these rates and you're looking at your sprayer calibration and then you're going well it says it's spraying 15 feet but i'm sitting here watching it spray on the plant right next to utv and yeah <laughs> I mean, it's just not in things are different in the woods you know and it is it is and let's say this i mean i again i I do not like herbicide. I wish I didn't have to use any, but I still use a little bit. I, I, I mean, we openly talk about it. We we use a little. We don't use near, near. I used, I used to buy glyphosate in 30-gallon drums. I mean, literally, I don't have to use near that much anymore on, on more acres of food plots. But to be fair, I, I dislike the midnight lawyers and people that are, like you said, there's people sharing information. There's people just trying to sell you something. I don't work for Bear, who owns you know, Monsanto now or the Roundup company or whatever. But even the UK, which I consider pretty cautious on these things, pretty hardcore, more more so than the United States, they just released a major publication based on almost five decades of research that said there are zero issues with glyphosate related to human health. And glyphosate is the most studied herbicide ever on the planet by, I don't know, hundreds of fold. I don't know where the midnight lawyers are doing, and I'm certainly not promoting herbicide. But if you got to use it, that's probably the safest one you're going to use. I mean, it just is not. And it has some issues with soil. It binds up some elements that plants can't get. It's it's going to make some elements unavailable to plants. You don't want to just be treating the field every, you know, like recreationally. Oh, hey, I think I'll go spray today. You know, that's not what you want to be doing. That's that has some issues in the soil, but it's probably us speaking on our iPhone all the time is, is more damaging to us than glyphosate probably is. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Next year they'll be telling us to put it on our eggs, but no, I've, what I'm focused on is saving time and saving money. Cause those are the, the definites that come out of this. Once you get it set up. I, I used to manage a large property, one in Georgia's Callaway gardens. Uh, I think it's been enough years. I'd say that like they didn't time didn't want, we killed a gazillion deer off there because they're eating up about a million dollars of azaleas every year, literally. Uh, and then we managed a large piece of land around an aluminum refinery. They couldn't have public hunting there for safety issues, but 6,000 acres actually published a lot of science off that work. 
uh, and man, we would disc and double disc and fertilizer and lime. And then we disc again to get our seed covered. And I spent so much time. And now in the spring, you know, and again, I might have a smaller food plot where the deer browse it so heavily. There's some weeds growing, but typically I go out there and I no trill drill later than most people right through my standing crop. A couple of weeks later, I do have a crimper. I'll crimp right over it. And then all summer long, I watch deer feed in it. And then uh, here, my first frost is about October 15th. So I like to plant about August 15th. If there's enough soil moisture, if we're really dry, I'll wait a little bit till there's some rain and forecast. And I drill right through that summer crop. And if it's a smaller field and the deer really browse it and some weeds are growing, I'll spray it. And if it's a bigger plot or a really good stand, I don't need to spray it. I'll just drill through there. And I'm done. I mean, I'm done. There's, again, in eight years, I have not had any lime or fertilizer. And then people say, well, I got to dish my lime in. You know, you got some really acidic soil. You haven't started process. You need to add a little lime. And it will react quicker. Lime reacts with individual soil particles. So if you disc it in, it's going to impact the pH quicker. There's no doubt about this. But disking has many, many negatives. And you can lime on top of soil. It will be slower. But then your plant roots, and some there's real simple things we haven't even talked about yet. When, you know, let's just say you had whatever, milo, sunflower, you know, soybean, whatever you had growing this summer. And you don't disc. You just you either broadcast on top or you drill through whatever you're doing. And that plant dies, the soybean dies, or the milo ripens and dies, whatever it is. But the roots are still right there. And they slowly start decomposing. And those roots are nutrient-rich. And they slowly start decomposing. Well, that new plant, the easiest place for it to put a root is right where that successful root was. Now, the plant tried to grow thousands of roots, but it hit whatever, an air pocket or a rock or, man, there's nothing here. I'm just going to die. There's no nutrients in this little microsite. The bigger successful roots found what they were looking for. They didn't just grow at random because there were a bunch of roots trying and a few made it. And they found nutrients or moisture or whatever it was. And that's right where those new plant roots would go. And you do that a couple years in a row. And you will literally see, literally, you will see red clay or light-colored sand start turning dark. And that darkness, this is so easy to explain. There's no magic here. There's no, you know, shaking of hands or something. Carbon, of course, carbon's black. Think of any kind of carbon you think of, it's black. Carbon is the most common element in a plant. Or human body is about 70% carbon. Plants are even a little bit higher percent carbon, depending on the type of plants you're talking about. The most limited element, no one ever talks about this, isn't nitrogen or phosphorus or potassium. It's carbon. That's what they need the most of. And and so you've got this soil that's getting richer and richer in carbon. And when it gets richer in carbon, it turns black. And I can take you to clients of mine in, in, in the South that had just Piedmont red clay soil. I, you know how it is. Hard as a brick when it's dry and so slick you can't walk on it when it's wet. And each year we had another quarter inch or half inch, been on a year, of a black layer of organic matter on top of that carbon, and their land is becoming so fertile without adding synthetic inputs. I really like that you're seeing these improvements over time and because I think that that's one of the things that is – I don't know. I don't know if a lot of landowners are like me, but I I feel like that long-term view and and being able to improve something and hopefully pass it on to the next steward and them see the benefit of your hard work. That's what I like about this, as opposed to maybe degrading the soil over time because you planted a food plot every year. That's one of the things that really attracts me to this method. But I want to take you back to, you mentioned smaller food plots. We're kind of on the subject of how you were terminating those smaller food plots. And I think that at least in the deep south, smaller food plots probably are the majority of food plots. And when I think small, I'm thinking less than an acre. So do you find that, uh, you know, browse pressure and just or maybe smaller food plots in general? Are there any any drawbacks to to no-tilling then? I mean, you know, you mentioned you were using herbicide because of that browse pressure as opposed to, you know, using a crimper to terminate that crop. What would you say to the guy who's really only planting small food plots or maybe he's planting his bow fields or his hidey hole plots, that kind of thing? Yeah. And I love hidey holes are an awesome tool. 
I think you can do this system and grow more vegetation and and do it simpler and quicker. And here's what I would do. Let's just say we're starting now in the fall. I would broadcast a really good blend. You probably have to use, I would rather you use an herbicide, let's say glyphosate, not just any herbicide, to terminate whatever's there. Or if it gets dry enough, you can, you know, take a backpack blower and get in a timber or whatever and blow to blow a little fire break, get the fuel out of the way, and, and just burn it off. We're just trying to expose the soil so seed will make seed-to-soil contact. That's what we want to do. And and anytime you're broadcasting, and this is tough to do if you're, you know, you're an absentee landowner, you live in Florida and yellow hunting track up in Georgia, it's tough to do. But if you can broadcast a seed right before rain for many reasons, A, it's better growing conditions, they're going to germinate quicker, they're not laying there in the heat. And your little quarter acre food plot in the middle of timber, it's shocking to realize how much seed is removed by squirrels, turkeys, you know, other rodents, other, you know, cardinals, other grain eating birds. It's amazing how much those rascals can remove in a day. And they find it quickly because once a cardinal gets in there and starts making feeding noises, all the local birds that eat grain know, well, he's found a feeder just like your backyard. And they flock in there. Doves would be in there. It'd be like a dove field, a baited dove field. So you're going to terminate the existing crop without disking. You're going to broadcast seed, hopefully right for rain, day or two for rain. And then you're done. You're just, weeds rarely are a big issue in the fall, unless you've had ryegrass in there. I never plant ryegrass in a food plot, not because deer won't eat it, because I can't control when it grows, when it doesn't grow. It'll grow for own time of year, crowd everything else out. It's just not a good food plot plant. And in that blend, I want to make sure there's some really hardy, like cereal rice, just to stand by. And I want some wheats and oats too. Uh, oats are palatable a little earlier than wheat or cereal rye. Never rye grass, but cereal rye. I want some really good annual clovers. And I'm going to have a couple of brassicas, a radish, and a turnip in there. And that's going to be an awesome blend that will attract deer early, mid, and late season and do wonders for your soil health. And then in the spring, you know, if you want to hunt turkey, you want to be a turkey strut area, that stuff's going to be getting pretty tall later turkey season. You may want to weed eat part of it down. Uh, so turkeys are more comfortable strutting in there. Or you may not. You may just let it go. If you're not planning on turkey hunting right there, let it get pretty doggone mature. And you can just, you can let it go all summer. And that will control, I'm going to say, you know, 80, 90% of the weeds, depending on where you are. It's just so big and so bulky. There's not enough sun getting down for other plants to grow. If you want to plant a summer food plot, boy, you don't want soybeans or something real attractive because in that small plot, they're going to wear it out and it's going to be a weed field. You just wasted your money. You're going to want to plant something that's kind of attractive to deer, but really oriented toward improving the soil for your fall crop. Because these small fields are basically kill plots. They're, they're built to draw deer to an area. And they're not big enough to feed deer or grow bigger antlers. We need to be honest about this. So you got these little small plots. If I'm planting somewhere, which I do, like Milo is a great example, has a great big root system, man. It can till the soil for you. And it's going to produce a grain that won't really attract deer during the summer. But boy, come early bow season, before the acorns hit the ground, the deer are going to be in your food plot. And the advantage of planting an early maturing Milo is, is that it's going to start drying up and you can just brought and, and suppressed weeds all summer. And then you can broadcast your fall blend right into that. And that's just a great little trick. Yeah, that sounds actually and very doable for really anybody that's got, I mean, that's mostly just basic hand tools. I mean, you could do that with a backpack sprayer and a redder. Um, I do that with hand tools, you know, just really candidly in that little small, let's just throw a number out, a quarter acre field. I can go do it with my hand tools faster than I can drive the tractor to it. So there's just no need. I just do it. And I have, you know, I kind of like doing stuff by hand. I like doing that kind of stuff. Now, you plant, you got to plant an early maturing Milo, not just the cheapest Milo you can find. Go ahead and spend an extra dollar to a bag and get the early maturing. So, because you want that matured. So in the leaves starting to brown up and let more sunlight pass through so your fall crop can grow. If you're starving it from sun, that fall crop's not going to grow further south you are, you can have a little bit later maturing milo because you're not planting quite as early. And if the deer browse it hard and, you know, knock it down, whatever, pigs get in there and, and eat the milo grain while still green, 
you're going to have some weeds come up. Then when it comes fall planting time, give it a light coat. And, and everyone used to do this everywhere. I did it. You know, we'd say two quarts of Roundup Fragrance, what everyone said. That's the standard recipe. And in my life, I've learned to change to percents because different sprayers have different droplet sizes. So you really want a percent. And I use a standard 2%. So if I'm going to apply 10 gallons of water to this area of land, 2% of that is going to be glyphosate or the active ingredient. And just doing that simple math, I think, will give you, you probably use less herbicide and get a better kill. That was something I, I ran into just, just a couple of weeks ago. You know, we were talking earlier and spraying some fields, trying to get them, you know, get some um, weed suppression going. And I, I'm sitting there like looking at the calibration and I'm looking at, you know, I feel like I feel like I had calculus running around in my head, you know, finally. Uh, I was, yeah. and, and, and then it was like, all right, well, I'm spraying it, but I'm really only getting contact to these plants. So I kind of just winged it and we're going to see how it worked out. That's also, though, that the benefits of using something that is terminating the crop right in front of your eyes. As you know, hey, that sucker's laying down. It's gone. And I definitely like that for multiple aspects. Now, we've been talking about the benefits of this, drawbacks of tillage, you know, even the drawbacks of no-till. And you've mentioned that you really haven't had to make any soil amendments, uh, which is very attractive. We talked about the time benefits, but where do you think the turnaround is on this? The payoff? I mean, is this something that a guy's got to commit to for two years, four years uh, before he starts to see it really turn around? I don't mean this to be self-promotional at all, and there's no way for me to say this out, but if if you guys, your listeners will watch the episode, we will release Monday at growingdeer.com and a little later on YouTube. We had, this is a perfect example, we had a a guy in East Texas, and and for those that aren't familiar, East Texas is all pine trees and sandy soil. It's just like that same band, you know, from East Texas to just south of D.C. is all coastal plain or Piedmont. That's just what it is through there. And so I had a guy in East Texas, and he wasn't growing too good a deer, and his food plot sucked, to be candid, and he had us come down, and and we convinced him to try no-till. And he'd been disking. He'd been making an average of seven passes across each food plot. Uh, you know, time he disk and he herbicide and he planted and he fertilized, everything. It was seven passes. And he's kind of a business guy. So he's tracking his hours. And he knew he wasn't getting a good return on his time or investment and all this stuff. And I said, Mama's not happy no-till. either. <laughs> no, no, no. He was a little grumpy when I first got there, to be honest. And, you know, I so said, why don't you no-till? And we're playing a different blend. He was planting all beans and deer, you know, deer were attracted to him. But, man, they were wiping him out about a month after he planted them. And he's going, yeah, I played all this money for a seed. And I'm out here and I got nothing but pigweed, you know. So I said, well, let's just, would you just give me, because he was not a believer. Would you just give me one year? Would you just change your system for one year? And if you're not seeing, you know, what you consider, not me saying, oh, yeah, I can see some number on, you know, some really obscure number on a soil test. Oh, yeah, look at here. But you can't walk out there and say, well, this is better than just start disking again. So he did and, you know, got some equipment together, whatnot. And we just went back down there. And I was shocked. I mean, it's a first timer. He, the guy had never pulled a no-till in his life. I'm thinking, I don't know, I don't know how this is going to be. And the food plots were beautiful. And he's seeing deer and he's seeing turkey. And this is a cool thing. He had spent, and again, he's a business guy. He's got a little spreadsheet on everything. He had 650 hours into the way he was doing to plant all of his food pots one time. That's a lot of time, man. I mean, that's a lot of time. A lot of time. You know, he's got brothers and everybody out there, and they're all grumpy. And he went from that to 95 hours. Wow. And had way better food pots and spent way less money. I mean, he sold for life. He was so happy. If you watch the episode, I mean, it's just... We just turned the camera on and let the guy roll because, I mean, there's no way to say it any better than he did. And this is just from not an agronomy type guy, not a wildlife biologist type guy. This is from a, a deer hunter's perspective. And it was beautiful. Now, they've had pretty good rain this year in East Texas, you know, had a few dry spells, but pretty good growing season overall. It wasn't like this wicked drought. And when I would take a shovel or pull plants out of ground, was it perfect? No, it wasn't. Because we started with sugar sand. But you could certainly tell. And here's a tip anyone can use, anywhere anyone can use. If, you know, you got a plant that's, you know, a couple of months old, it's been in soil a while. 
pull it out as easy as you can. You may even want to get a shovel under it and kind of ease it out and then shake the dirt off. Don't just, you know, don't take just shake it hard. Try to get as much dirt off. And if the roots are white, you know, almost white, you know your soil is dead as a hammer. And if the roots have some soil clinging to them or they're pretty dark, almost the same color as the soil, then you know you've got pretty good microbial activity. You've got the positive microbes in the soil, and it's there's an economy. Those microbes are literally going in and out of the fine root hairs. Literally, there's an economy. And they're taking phosphorus and nitrogen and potassium into the plant, and what they want out of the plant is what they can't get. Of course, the plant is photosynthesizing, and the product of photosynthesis is C6H12O6, not to be technical. Well, C is carbon. The plant's making a ton of carbon. It's taking carbon out of the atmosphere and trying to put it in the soil. And the reason it does that in very simple terms is, is this economy going on in the soil, the microbes have an excess of nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, zinc, and other minerals. The plant has an excess of carbon, and they're trading. They're bartering with each other. And that's how the great prairies worked for centuries without any synthetic lime or fertilizer, okay? And that's what can happen in your one-acre food plot. But if you've been disking forever, I'm willing you know, to buy you lunch if you pull that root out and it's not pretty white looking because you've killed all the beneficial bacteria. What if you're in an area that's that's already pretty sandy soils to start with, like a lot of our coastal areas? You know, we've got a high sand content. Oh, yeah. If you will quit disking, in those high sandy areas, here, here's what I want you to do. In the high sandy areas, go into hardwood forest somewhere. You know, that's older stand, at least 40, 50 years old. Scratch back the leaves and tell me what color the dirt is underneath there. It's going to be dark. I don't know if it's going to be black, yeah. but it's going to be darker. Well, that's right. what your food plot can be, too, because when you've been disking. When I, I schooled at Georgia and Clemson, I think I mentioned that, and I always remember this one class I had at Clemson that just, you know, I slept through most of them, to be honest. But this one class is a great professor, knowledgeable and a deer hunter, so he and I, we got along well together. And he shared that the average soil loss in the state of South Carolina was 17 inches during the cotton farming years, you know, the early years, not modern cotton farming, the early, you know, the plantation years. Because, of course, they were plowing, they'd plow, it'd come a heavy rain. You, you can go online, see these massive deep gullies in the south that have filled in a little bit over time. I mean, massive. One of them, I think it was in South Carolina, Georgia, they called it the Grand Canyon South. It was totally due to erosion. So everyone in the south right now is literally working with the B horizon. The A horizon has been in the Atlantic Ocean since about the 1850s or so. The B horizon is what you're working with. Our floodplains here are downriver south of our agricultural belt and are most of it. So, and it's strange it, it, you can go do a soils test in the, in the river swamps and the floodplains. And it is, at least at the upper levels, will come back almost a perfect match for what's in the agriculture with the black belt of Alabama. Yes. Because for that yes. the explanation I've got for that same same reason that it's all flowed down river and been dispersed inside the floodplain. And so this is getting a little bit deeper. And, you know, I know me, <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, I'm a deer hunter. I'm a turkey guy. But I think we all, and I got this from Johnny Morris, the guy started Bass Pro. Of course, I live right here by that area and I'm blessed enough to work with him. But, you know, he has this statement, we all live downstream and a lot of people copied it whatnot. And the other thing he said one time in a meeting I was in that really hit me hard. I, I guess I'm a sucker for good one-liners, but he said, when it comes to conservation, there's no competition. There should be no competition. And I think we all need to do what's best for everyone. And, you know, if you Google, there's this massive dead zone out the Mississippi River in the Gulf that's like 10,000 square miles, literally. I'm not just throwing a number out. And it's so full of nitrates. There's no fish in there. You can look at it on Google Earth and see it. You can see the edge of it just on Google Earth without any fancy political science. You can see it clearly. And that's all the excess fertilizer from the ag fields going down the Mississippi River and dumping into the ocean. There. And, you know, food plotters, and I was one of them, man. I mean, you know, if a little bit is good, a whole lot more is better. And plants aren't using all that. And it's, you know, it's in a form that plants can't use. You know, if you just put raw phosphorus 
in a little potted tomato plant and you put a little too much in there, you're turning it black. You're kill it. You got to have microbes to convert that to a form a plant can use. And here is exactly how we got on this trade back in the day, back in universities. And they were all doing greenhouse testing. Well, they would get some soil in, but they wanted to make sure their tests were all the same, which is good science. You know, they want to control in there. So they would sterilize the soil. They killed all the microbes. Well, there's no, it was just dead. It was, you know, dead soil is what we call dirt. It's just a substrate that holds plants up. And of course, those plants responded a little bit to NPNK because it was dead. But if you've got a one-acre food plot next to a 20-year-old pine stand, I promise you there's good bacteria in that pine stand, oak stand, swamp, whatever it is. And, and it won't take long for that to work back out in the field if you quit disking and quit exposing all that air and sun to the soil. And the last thing I want to say about this, man, this is so cool. This is so cool. It's just so cool how it all works together. So the buffalo, they were, it turns out, they were the key to keeping all this land working well. And here's why. Of course, they ate a lot. And if you watch a deer, you see the same thing. They salivated a lot. All ruminants salivate a lot. And a teaspoon of rumen fluid, you know that stuff you, you don't like when your bullet goes in there, that teaspoon of that real green stuff, has about a trillion bacteria per teaspoon. And it's, unless you're feeding deer something funky in the pen, it's the natural bacteria that will benefit plants. That's part of the cycle. So when I see a deer, you know, spending some time out in my food plot and it's head down, you might even see it urinate or defecate. If you look close, you're going to see it salivate. That's adding the perfect microbes to your soil. Perfect. And if you disc, a couple of things are happening. You know, let's say you disc and you plant that same day. It's what? I don't know. Been on the rain two, three, four weeks where you really got a lot of vegetation that's up and really photosynthesizing well out there. Well, you just took a month out of prime season that you should be pumping carbon into the soil. And all you did was lose carbon. Every time you disc, you lose carbon. That's why it's red or white or whatever color. But if you had left that covered up with food and de- and then deer and rabbits and other critters are out there eating and urinating, defecating, salivating, you're adding these life-giving microbes to the soil. I know it sounds like, whoa, he's, that boy's fell off his rocker. But once <laughs> you see it happening and you see the results of it, like if you could come tour my place or my buddies in the south that's been doing this for a while, you will be amazed. I mean, it's amazing. And that's how the system was built to work. That's just how it was created. It's so cool to me that you've been able to follow nature, you know, follow what was happening and and then recreate it in your own way on your own property and then be able to prove it, you know, with, I mean, you know, your videos and your your education that you're giving everybody. It's so cool to see it at work. And then the flip side of that is, it's just better for your pocketbook. You know, I mean, it, it, the end all be all to this thing is that just on the time alone that you mentioned with your client out in East Texas, I mean, that paid for whatever kind of equipment he needed to get to do this. And, you know, people will make that excuse. But like you said, there's equipment you can rent. There's ways you can do this. It doesn't require. Uh, you just have to have the want to and the drive. I think you've done a really good job today, Grant, being a, being an ambassador for, for no-till, uh, but also just educating us on why it's important and why it may be a viable option for really any landowner that's wanting to improve their habitat, improve their wildlife, improve their, their financial situation with the ongoing management of their land. I appreciate you joining us today, sharing this with us, but man, there's so much more out there for people to learn on this and to pay attention. So tell us a little bit about growing deer and, you know, how people can follow along the different ways. I mean, I get your emails. I watch you on YouTube. I love following along with everything you're doing there. So where do you like to point people? Just Google or search on growing deer on any of your streaming apps or anywhere you're, you're find us. It's of course, we have our own growingdeer.com and YouTube and Roku and Apple TV and Amazon. And I'm probably waypoint and carbon TV. I'm probably missing some in there. So and, and what do we do, basically, the reason I don't know any of that, that's not what I do. My wife or someone else does that. I, I'm a field biologist. I, I'm best in the field. I love learning. I love doing. So uh, what we do simply is we produce a show at least once a week, often twice a week. 
of just what we're doing. It's it's not like we produce it now and a month later, two months later we air it. You know, we produce it. We, it's going to be on the air within seven days, usually, depending on the weekend, maybe eight, nine, ten days, something like that. So it's current. It's going to apply to folks, and and there's no plan. I cannot tell you what two weeks from now is going to be on the air. I have no idea. We just so you know if we're dry, probably some other people in a drought, or if we're doing some timber stand improvement or hacking, squirting trees, we're just we're just sharing it with people. We don't have a plan. We just do what we do. Grant, it's always a pleasure having you on. We appreciate you sharing your knowledge with us, and uh, we're going to look forward to the next topic. There's always always something to talk about with land, and uh, we're going to have you back on as, as soon as we can to talk about something else. So uh, thanks again for joining us. Man, thanks for the opportunity, and thanks for sharing. And I know you're reaching a lot of people, so hopefully you're helping a lot of people too. All right, let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. Alabama Ag Credit. Buying rural property isn't the same as buying in town. If you're in the market to purchase your own piece of paradise or need an operating line for your farm, give our friends at Alabama Ag Credit a call. As the local experts in rural real estate financing, they can help you with everything from homes and land to tractors and crops, because sometimes natural resources need financial resources. And while some lenders don't get it, they do. Learn more by visiting alabamaagcredit.com. And also brought to you by Great Days Outdoors Magazine. Great Days Outdoors Magazine guides you on hunting and fishing south of the Mason-Dixon. Become a better southern hunter and angler and pick up your copy today. Wherever fine magazines are sold or save online at greatdaysoutdoors.com. And also brought to you by Brush Clearing Services. Are you interested in building a healthy, sustainable habitat for a wide range of wildlife? If so, Brush Clearing Services and their 20 years of wildlife management experience should be your first choice. Brush Clearing Services, environmental clearing treatment selectively removes vegetation, leaving desirable trees and root structures undisturbed. Mulch left on site accelerates natural decomposition and reduces soil erosion while increasing soil moisture. Check out their full line of property and land services at Brush Clearing Services services.com or call them 706-718-1690 and also by bucks island marine they have new pontoon boats bass boats bow riders and aluminum boats for sale they provide boat service on all kinds of boats even if they weren't purchased from bucks you can visit them at 4500 highway 77 in south side alabama or give them a call at 256-442-2588 clay you know we talk a lot about improving the value of your property. Um, some of those things that you do to improve the value of your property can be done through, they just happen over time. You know, your timber grows and and dirt appreciate, but then some things can be manipulated and forced. I mean, you can build that barn or build that pond or the case of like what we're talking about today, improve the soil. In your day-to-day, how big of a factor is soil health? And when I say health, I just mean soil quality to the people that are buying land? Well, the results that come from that soil quality is, is where it's at. So, you know, when you walk out there in these fields and you can tell the difference between, you know, those that have been really taken care of and nursed and, you know, had that love that a lot of places haven't that where people were just rushing in at the last minute, just doing the bare minimum. When you can relay and articulate that value to people, you know, it can have a huge return on, on what you get for the property. And I just think about too, you know, I mean, think about being able to articulate to someone that, hey, if you continue on what's been instituted here, you don't have a need for fertilizer. You don't have a need for lime. This is not a, re- this is just not something you're going to have to deal with. I, to me, that would be a big selling point. On a philosophical level, you're just treating the land right. And if you treat the land right, it's going to treat you right. And I, I like that about what Grant's doing. Yeah, you save a lot of time to boots. I mean, that's the biggest thing is you can walk right in and start start enjoying it faster with your family and your friends and not have to worry about putting all those blood, blood sweat, and tears to get it there. Yep, spend more time hunting and having fun and keeping everybody happy instead of having to figure out how you can get up there this this day or this weekend to get this thing done that you just have to get done on this day. Sounds a lot like a lot less stress as well. Well, folks, that's going to wrap it up this week. I hope you enjoyed the show and I hope you guys go check out Grant Woods over on his, uh, in all the places you can find him. I love watching him on YouTube and seeing what they've got going on weekly. Uh, They just do some really cool stuff out there. Appreciate you guys tuning in. 
We want to make it easy for you to listen. So here's a handy option for you. To get the podcast emailed to you each week, just text the word hunting to 773-770-4377. Again, just text the word hunting to 773-770-4377. You'll join our email list. And wherever you are listening to podcasts, go ahead, subscribe, rate, and review. Send us a written review. We'd love to hear from you. If you've got a show topic, that you are interested in and like to see us cover, just email us at pros at landhunting.com. That's going to do it for us. Y'all stay safe out there. We'll talk to you next time. This week's Hunt and Land podcast has been brought to you by Sun South. Own the best for less. Visit Sun South for quality John Deere equipment you've been dreaming of or visit sunsouth.com. Sun South for those that do. And also brought to you by Bucks Island Marine. They have new pontoon boats, bass boats, bow riders, and aluminum boats for sale. They provide boat service on all kinds of boats, even if they weren't purchased from Bucks. You can visit them at 4500 Highway 77 in Southside, Alabama, or give them a call at 256-442-2588. And also brought to you by Brush Clearing Services. Check out their full line of property and land services at brushclearingservices.com or call them at 706-718-1690. And also, Alabama Ag Credit, as the local experts in rural real estate financing, they can help you with everything from homes and land to tractors and crops. Because sometimes natural resources need financial resources. And while some lenders don't get it, they do. Learn more by visiting alabamaagcredit.com. And also, Photonis Defense is proud to offer the PD Pro line of night vision systems. These ultralight, ultra-compact night vision systems deliver the cleanest image, best resolution, smallest, most transparent halo, and best overall performance and function of any night vision system available. Check them out. Photonis Defense, Masters of Darkness.